0: to see you, and uh, I can just glimpse a few of you there on Zoom as well, uh, and it's good to see you too. Uh, we're just uh, towards the beginning of a series looking at some of the complex issues we face in our world, issues that uh, um, Christians sometimes feel difficult to deal with, sometimes people around us on our front lines, in our workplaces and so on find difficult to deal with. We live in a complex world, don't we, with lots of choices. Uh, Often these choices result from welcome advances in technology, but uh, because of that, they're not dealt with directly in the Bible. So how can we learn to think and behave Christianly? And really that's what this series is trying to encourage us to do. How can we role model justice to a society which has different values to us without coming across as judgmental or condemning? And I want to acknowledge this morning that we are touching on issues that may bring pain to some. You may even have found that Bible reading in some cases difficult. Perhaps you need to find healing in body, mind or spirit. To find acceptance, forgiveness or wholeness. And I would encourage you to talk to somebody about that. To me, to Steph, to the pastoral team and we might point you to specialist advice as well. But that psalm that we 've just heard, which I think uh, if we could have back on the screen again uh, ben is an i 'm not going to give a detailed bible study of it this morning, but it 's an interesting psalm on, on uh, 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 First sight, it seems rather disconnected. You seem to have a first section that's all about sort of work and uh, building and watching and so on. And then the second part of the psalm, which perhaps we find more difficult in some ways, is a psalm that uh, talks about some of the benefits of having children. I think if we try and look at the psalm as a whole, and somebody in Israel's history, it's attributed to Solomon in fact, put these thoughts together in one psalm, in one song of praise. And I think the psalm as a whole is encouraging us to think about the dangers of striving for outcomes rather than relying on God and working with him. Building and guarding are fine, but not... Without God, not if God is not at the centre, not if we don't recognise that ultimately it's the Lord that needs to do the building and the watching. Strain and stress are not good things, certainly not in themselves. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food. For who grants sleep, who grants rest? It is God, and we are to trust him. Including, we might add, particularly in view of some of the topics that we're going to be touching on this morning, the sleep of death, which sometimes in our society we try so hard to avoid and we see in such negative terms. But the Bible doesn't look at it that way. It talks of it as sleep. And children, seen as a blessing, as a gift, and childlessness, by implication, as sadness, but not a curse, something that's a path some people have to walk, but something they need encouragement for and which we acknowledge and want to support them in. But above all, this psalm reminds us that relationships matter and to keep looking upwards to God, the one in whom all our hopes and our toils and our dreams need to find their fulfilment. And need to be based on. Now, I want to talk this morning about some principles. Now, um, there's a difference between uh, principles and rules. And I think as humans, we have a bit of a love hate relationship with rules. In my my former life, when I worked in in London in finance, uh, I used to get involved in in professional standards, in in ethics committees and all that kind of stuff, trying to set standards and trying to encourage people to behave in a a good and uh, professional and ethical fashion. And one of the debates we had is, do you set lots and lots of very detailed rules or do you try to give people some principles to live by? And what I noticed is that people would always say, oh, we don't like rules. Uh, rules tie us up in red tape, and uh, it's, um, they restrict our freedom, and we don't like being told what to do. So you say, right, uh, we'll, we'll scrap the rules then, and we'll give some principles, uh, some, some big concepts as to how you should live, uh, how you should act professionally and ethically and so on. And so you do that, and then the first thing people come to you and say is, we don't know what to do. Uh, Please tell us, please put some flesh on the bones. Please, I've got this difficult situation I'm in, Uh, please give me a ruling. And you say, well, that's not the point. We're not living in the world of rules any longer. And it's quite interesting in the the world of COVID we've seen this. Uh, The government puts puts out a lot of rules and people say, please don't give us these rules. How dare you, the government, tell us how to behave and restrict our freedom. So the government backs off a bit and it says, okay, well, well you make up our minds. And, And what do you read all over the newspapers? We want clarity. Please tell us what to do. Please don't give us amber. We want red and green. We have a love-hate relationship with rules, don't we? Well, the Bible, and you might think this is good news or bad news, the Bible isn't actually particularly into rules. Even the Old Testament, if you read it carefully, you'll find it's not really about rules, it's about principles. And certainly as you read in, move into the New Testament, there's not lots of rules. There's principles that we're given by which to live. And so we don't find the answer to every question and every problem that life brings us written on the pages of the Bible. It's not a rule book. It's a set of principles by which to live by a, 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 a set of um, stories and narratives that point us to God and keep saying, "Well, well, look at God and see what He's like and see what Jesus is like and live like that." Here are some principles. Here's a few rules to point you in the right direction, but it's not a rule book. So I'm going to suggest three principles this morning, all of which I think are countercultural. 3 countercultural principles. The first one uh, mentioned there on the screen, which I talked about into the introductory video, so I'm not going to repeat, but I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, look at the video that's in the email. Uh, as Christians, we are to focus on our responsibilities, not our rights. If you, if you look out in the world, if you go on social media, if you read your newspapers, it's always on about rights. What are my rights? The Bible does not encourage us to think of ourselves as having rights as God's children. We do have rights as God's children, praise him, but they are not to dominate our thinking. The Bible instead talks a lot about our responsibilities as God's children. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look out, to look after... To look after who? Not myself, the orphans and widows. In their society, those were the people who were most vulnerable. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Look after the most vulnerable, keep yourself pure. Principles. Principles based on my responsibilities to others, not the rights that I'm going to demand. So let's move on from that. So my second principle, and that's a cult- counter-cultural principle, but I encourage you to think how that might affect your attitudes to some of the difficult issues around the start and end of life. But let's move on to my second principle, which is that relationships matter. It's not all about me. And this I suppose this relates back to the first one, because the rights, if I'm not careful, become all about me. But the second principle, which I think we saw in that psalm, is that relationships with God, first of all, and with others matter. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And the second commandment is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. It's about others. It's about God, first of all, and then it's about everybody else. And I'm way off the scale in terms of what should be at the forefront of my mind. And by the way, that wasn't really a rule, was it? It was a principle. It doesn't tell me how to behave in every situation. It doesn't give me a whole code of regulations. It says, here's the principle. Look up and look out. So the biblical view of life is that we are interconnected. We're connected with God and we're connected with one another. And when we look at marriage, when we look at sex, when we look at childbirth, when we think about parenting, when we talk about sickness and healing, when we talk about caring for the elderly, when we talk about dying... All these difficult issues are issues which the Bible encourages us to think of in relational terms. They're not just things that affect me. They are community things. Even things that are, in a sense, very private, like sexual relationships, are, are, um, in the Christian worldview, they're, they're in a sense public as well. Weddings are public events. Weddings are something we do as a community to affirm a couple. Setting out on life together. They are spiritual events. They are family events. And that's how God created us to be. Community family people. Psalm 139 is often quoted in the context of of childbirth and um, particularly around abortion. But actually Psalm 139, if you look at it as a whole, is relevant to this area of debate because it's all about trusting God about being open to him and being dependent on him it's about me not being in control and I think for some people not being in control is a really hard thing I think sometimes and I I reflected on this quite a lot when my own father died my father was a Um, somebody who I wouldn't say he was a controlling person at all but he was the he was the go-to person in the church in the family in the wider family that everyone went to when they had an issue uh, for help and and I felt very strongly that in his final years which were horrendous he had Alzheimer's and he he lost almost everything it seemed that defined him as a person all that was stripped away and I felt that was, in a sense, the final lesson he had to learn what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus when you weren't in control, when you were being ministered to and not ministering. But how does that affect how we approach issues around the beginning of life? A child, a conception, is not just the responsibility of a mother, but also of a father but also of a wider family. And I think we lose this in the West. We think in terms of nuclear families at at the widest. We don't think in terms of wider family and community. Having or not having a child are things which affect us all. I want to read you a quote from a a book um, about New Testament ethics. And it's the story about a group of ministers in North America who were debating the morality of abortion. And let me me read the quote. One of the ministers argued that abortion is justified in some cases because young teenage girls cannot possibly be expected to raise children by themselves. But a black minister, the pastor of a large African-American congregation, takes the other side of the question. This is what he says. We have young girls who have this happen to them, I have a 14-year-old in my congregation who had a baby last month. We're going to baptize that child next Sunday, he added. Do you really think she's capable of raising a little baby? Another minister asked. Of course not, he replied. No 14-year-old is capable of raising a baby. For that matter, not many 30-year-olds are qualified. A baby is too difficult for any one person to raise by herself. So what do you do with babies? They asked. Well, we baptize them so that we all raise them together. In the case of that 14-year-old, we have given her baby to a retired couple who have enough time and enough wisdom to raise children. They can then raise the mother along with the baby. That's the way we do it. Well, that's countercultural, isn't it? Can you imagine that happening in Haywood's Heath? A 14-year-old came to us and said, I'm pregnant. What would we say? Why are you pregnant? What did you do? You're not going to have an abortion, are you? Well, this church in North America gives us a role model of how to approach it. We envelop that person in our love and we raise both the mother and the child together. Not an easy thing to do. I hope you've had a chance to listen to the talk that I also put uh, with the, in the email this week from Caroline, who, run, who helps run the Haven Centre in Burgess Hill. I'd really encourage you to listen to that talk uh, that was given here a couple of years ago. A talk about abortion and how that charity um, comes alongside people who've had uh, abortions but also other issues around um, difficulties with childbirth, miscarriages and stillbirths and so on. Some of the statistics she gave were extraordinary. Around 200,000 abortions are carried out each year in this country, which means that they account for over a quarter of human deaths in Britain, much more than COVID. Around a third of women will have had an abortion by the age of 45. Probably somebody here or watching online, probably several people are affected by this. Very few of these are carried out for medical reasons, such as a disability, although in cases where Downs is detected, the abortion rate goes up to something like 95%. And in some countries, there's even a suggestion and a growing acceptance that newborn babies can also be killed if they suffer severe disabilities. And there's pressure to increase the availability of that. And I think... As Christians, we look at the principles in the Bible and we say that cannot be right. That cannot be the right course for us, except perhaps in some very extreme circumstances. God is surely grieved and dishonoured. But Christians also, unfortunately, have gained a reputation for being people without compassion for vulnerable women. The average age of abortion in this country is 22 Most people who have abortions are very vulnerable. They don't feel in control of their situation at all. And we need to be careful not to have a reputation for preaching at satiety when we have many sins of our own, which perhaps we choose to overlook. So how can we as a church react to this? Well, we can put God at the centre of our life Actions We can affirm that conception is a gift from God and something which he is profoundly involved in. We can be more mindful of our collective responsibilities to unborn children, however hard they might be to bear. We can ensure that God is at the centre of conversations we have about prenatal screening, which is taken for granted that prenatal screening is a good thing but have people thought through what will happen when they have results that maybe they're not expecting? How can we as a church show that bringing up a child which, with a congenital disability is not something which you will be left to do on your own? We can pray. We can pray for people who work in, med, in, in abortion clinics. We can pray for those who do prenatal screening. We can pray for women with unsought pregnancies who don't necessarily want an abortion but might feel that that's their only option. We can pray for campaigners and politicians. We can pray for the Haven Centre in Burgess Hill. Isn't it wonderful that in our area, compassionate support for women who've chosen to have abortions is being provided with Christians who don't agree that abortion is the right course but who do believe that we're called to love those who've chosen that course. Could you be involved in that? Could you support it financially or in prayer? We can be people who show that with God there is mercy and grace. The vulnerable, women who is, the vulnerable woman who is overwhelmed with confusion or guilt or despair needs to hear about God's grace Many women carry burdens of guilt and what God wants you to hear if you're in that situation is that he wants to forgive you and heal you and for you to be a means of healing. For church to be a safe place for people to bring their burdens, not a place where they fear condemnation. Shall we pause there and pray? Father God, I pray for anyone listening right now who is finding this very difficult to hear, perhaps because of something that's happened in their own life. I pray here and now, Holy Spirit, that you will bring your healing and help. And I pray for those of us who perhaps think we know the answers on all this, perhaps who are in danger of being harsh and judgmental, that you will show us how to show your love and your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my second principle was around relationships. And then my third principle is around treating life as preparation for death. And this, again, is countercultural because our tendency in our age is to treat life as something that's, uh, well, be- definitely best not think about death because that's far too troubling and certainly not think of life as preparing us for death. You see, human life actually is not inviolable. inviolable, inviolable. Sorry, how do you say that? It's not something that is so sacrosanct that you, we have to protect it at every cost. It's a gift from God. I quoted Stanley Havas in the, in the video I uh, sent out, and here's another quote from him. He tends to be a bit provocative, but listen to this. Christians do not believe that life is sacred. Christians took their children with them to martyrdom rather than have them raised pagan. Christians believe there is much worth dying for. For we do not believe human life is an absolute good in and of itself. Christians know that Christianity is simply extended training in dying early. The Christian respect for life is first of all a statement not about life, but about God. Christians know that Christianity is simply extended training in dying early. That's what we're doing here, folks. We're on a training course. We're on a program. That means we're going to be ready when that day comes. We're not trying to avoid it at all costs. We're not avoiding the subject either. Difficult though it is, we are called to fear neither life nor death, for perfect love casts out fear. Sacrificing your life it happens when we think there is something worth dying for. That's what Christian martyrdom is it's motivated by the glory of God. Taking your own life because there's nothing worth living for is suicide which is motivated by my own inaccurate feelings about my self-worth or perhaps a mental imbalance. We need to avoid judging people who end up in such a desperate situation while reaffirming that that cannot be the right solution. It does so much harm and causes so much pain to others and it doesn't honour God. Suffering. The biblical view on suffering is at odds with our risk-free culture. Suffering arises from the fall and it's bad and ultimately it will be defeated and we shouldn't go looking for it. But in this life, suffering is not to be avoided at all costs. It cannot be avoided. God works through suffering and discipleship involves suffering, taking up our crosses daily. So how does does all this affect our attitude to the end of life? What does dying well look like? What does dying well look like? Would you like it to be sudden? Would you like it to be pain-free? Would you like it to be in your own home? Would you like to be in control? What's a Christian perspective on all this? I think one of the most important aspects of Jesus' own suffering and death was what we might call today the loss of autonomy. Uh, Read Luke chapter 22 when you get home and see how Jesus was... In a sense, he was in control because he was God, but he'd given over control, hadn't he? He'd handed himself over firstly to God and then physically to the human authorities. And although in some ways Jesus remained in control of the situation, the reality was that he submitted to arrest because he knows it's the Father's will at that time for him to be delivered over to the dark powers. I think one of the most difficult aspects of suffering for terminally ill patients is their transformation from autonomous agents to persons who are utterly dependent upon others for life and care. And I think it's that that often makes people think, well, there's no point in me living, I'd rather not be. And yet this dependence, this helplessness, this need to wait upon the initiative of others... They've all been sanctified by God in Christ Jesus. They're all things we see happening to him. And the responsibility of the church is to be a people of faith and love who by our actions and words release people from fear of pain and indignity and dependence And we do that by instead modeling those things, pain, indignity, and dependence. We don't model people who've got it all sorted and don't need anybody else. We model what it means to live life in community, in relationship with others, being dependent on others. I wonder what you feel you've learnt during the pandemic. I hope we're not going to forget the lessons. I've been quite surprised about how fearful some Christians have been. I think it's been hyped up a lot, hasn't it, by the media. Fearful and a bit self-absorbed. What have we learnt about ourselves? And what do we need to learn about our preparedness for dying? But coming back to that question, what does a good Christian death look like? Well, presumably it's going to be distinctive because we do have a hope. A Christian death shouldn't be the same as a death for somebody with no hope. Presumably it's not actually that list of things I mentioned earlier, uh, being sudden or pain-free or in our own home or in control. Those are not primarily the things that matter. I think for a Christian, a good death is one where we see the opportunity and we experience the opportunity for spiritual growth, for getting closer to God, for getting closer to those we love, having our priorities changed. I know these are difficult topics and I know you might not want to discuss them afterwards or in your breakout rooms, but if you have the courage, do talk about it. Because I think it matters. If we believe that Christianity is extended preparation for dying, then we do need to be talking about it. Death is the great taboo in our society, and we as Christians should not be going along with that. So let me conclude. God wants the church to be a place which helps people to cope, whether that's with singleness or infertility Parenting, disease, making difficult decisions, regrets over past decisions, whatever it is, church needs to be a place where people are equipped and helped to cope. This is a place where people need to feel able to be open in the confidence that they will be loved and supported, but perhaps sometimes challenged. But it's also more than coping, It's about modelling and living out the abundant, vulnerable, glorious life which Jesus modelled to us in his life and death. I don't know if you've got the risk band, what would Jesus do? It's quite a good principle, isn't it? What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He gave over control. He gave over control to God and he lived, his, he lived his life for the benefit of others. But I want to end just by reminding us particularly that the gospel is a gospel of grace. I'm sorry this morning if I've churned up difficult emotions within you. I look out and I, I, look, I, I know you all mostly <laughs> and I know some of the stuff that you've been through. And I know how hard this topic must be for you to hear. And I also suspect there's people watching who, who I don't know, or who've, who've got stuff that you've buried deep. You don't even want to think about it yourself, and maybe that's been churned up in your heart this morning. But I think I want to the place I want to end with this, this morning is, is where we were with that song earlier. Amazing grace." Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. That is the message we have to proclaim. There is nothing in your life. There is nothing in your heart that is so... um, however, However much you feel that it makes you unworthy... It makes you uh, hopeless or useless or anything like that. God does not look at you like that. God, God looks at you with grace. And grace means that God looks at you not for who you think you are, but who he made you to be. He looks at you as a precious child, a precious son and daughter, and he loves you. And whatever it is that you think alienates you from God or from anybody else, God has dealt with that, and he dealt with that at the cross. He dealt with that by taking all that upon himself. That thing that you think is so shameful that you could not possibly name it in church, that thing was borne by Jesus as he hung on the cross. The guilt and the pain and the penalty for that has been borne already by Jesus. And you just have to to enter into the fullness of that. You have to say yes to that. Well, you don't have to. That's the point. But please do. Please say yes to that. Please say yes to God and the love that he has for you. I'm afraid as a church we won't always live up to these ideals. But we need to work at it. We need to work at being careful about the burdens we place on others. We need to be careful <clears throat> about romanticizing life, about romanticizing parenthood. Both in our services but also in our private lives, in, our, in what we put on social media. What are we saying about what we think life really is? I'm going to pause. Uh, normally in our service, we'd have an opportunity for prayer ministry. We can't do that in the, in the normal way. But I would encourage you this morning, if you're feeling emotional, maybe you're feeling angry, maybe you're thinking, I wish I'd never come here. I'd, this is stirred up stuff that I didn't want to think about. And that's okay. God can cope with anger. Uh, anger's better than just apathy. Maybe you're feeling angry. Maybe you're feeling upset. Maybe you're feeling guilty or sad. Please, please don't just bury that or rebury it. Allow God to minister to you. Talk to somebody. Talk to somebody here. Um, You know, you can go out in the garden or in the car park or somewhere. Find a quiet spot. Or give somebody a ring later or drop them a text and say, can we talk? Feel free to contact me or Steph or one of the pastoral team or somebody you know who perhaps can talk to you and pray with you. Let's be quiet for a moment and let's bring to God what's on our hearts and what he might have been saying to us and perhaps challenging us about this morning. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you will make those words real to everyone here. Every single one of us, may we encounter you in your grace. And whatever we have in our lives that that makes us think we can't really come to you, that you won't really love us and accept us. We pray that you will take those feelings away because they are not right feelings. They're not accurate and truthful feelings. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will minister to us. And we pray that you will help us as a church community to speak your words of truth, but also to speak your words of grace. And to know how to live our lives this week and every week Christianly. To know what Jesus would have done in this situation that we face. And to be able to put his life into practice in our lives. Give us grace, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our final song. Everyone needs compassion. Everyone needs compassion. Let's sing together while well, you're not allowed to sing